Buffalo Wild Wings has specials on food from 3 to 6, Monday through Friday, and great deals on drinks all day. It's the perfect way to offset a long day. Text that hilarious joke about your boss to your boss. What? No, no. Try a $3 Wild Herd by Goose Island. Set your morning alarm for 6 p.m. That calls for $5 strawberry margaritas. So if you ask your phone why you're still single and... Ha, ha, ha. Seriously? Head to Buffalo Wild Wings. At participating locations, taxes and fees apply. Dine-in only. Drink responsibly. Offers vary by location. Void where prohibited. In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm. You're keeping it cool, too. With an ice-cold cold brew. And not just any cold brew, but one that's slow-steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. Hello there and welcome to another episode of This Week in History with me, your host, Dan the Viking. We are joined again by by Dad. I'll just, I'll just call, start calling you. Everyone else can call you Dad from now on. It's just it's easier. Um, That's fair enough. Yeah. I don't like it. You're not giving out your full name. Just Dad. But we, we're joined <laughs> again. Um, now, we mentioned this story when we did the Casey Jones. Um, it's one I have been biting to do. It's one I've really wanted to do for a long time. In fact, this was the one that I was more interested in when it, when we had yeah. the choice of the two between this one and the Casey Jones. However, I am glad we did the Casey Jones because that was a blinding episode. And to be honest, from what you've probably heard as well, possibly one of the best episodes that's ever gone onto the podcast. From the, all the feedback that's come in, um, it was probably one of the best ones we've ever done. So well, I'm glad about that. Yeah, so hopefully this one's going to be up there with that because this is an awesome story. So what are we talking about this week, Dad? Oh, we are going to talk about the wreck of the Southern Mail Train, 1903. Okay. It's not the <laughs> way I know it, but yeah. All right. I mean, this is the story of one of the most famous train crashes in American history, um, and it's immortalised by a song... The Wreck of the Old 97. Yes. Yes, it is. One of my favourite songs as well. You reckon? Yeah, I absolutely <laughs> love it. Okay. It's another railway story in a similar vein to the one we did about Casey Jones. And it happened only three years after Casey Jones himself. Um, I mean, I said that the history of the American railroad system is filled with accidents, many of them fatalities, especially in the early years. Um, and in fact, accidents were just commonplace. They rarely made anything but the inside of the newspapers, and that includes if people were killed. Yeah. Um, engines, like I said in, at the start of the Casey Jones uh, thing, were categorised by their wheel layout, and they were described by a sequence of numbers, three numbers, uh, 462, um, and a 462 engine would have four leading wheels, six drive wheels, and two trailing wheels. That's the actual engine itself. Yes. Um, so when you view it from the side, you'd actually see two, three, and one. Yep. 
Um, so an engine with only six drive wheels would be an 030. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Or, as your Americans put it, 060. Because yeah. I've heard that Americans don't use... Oh. Oh. Yeah, which is weird because they don't use O, they say zero, but then when they're like I mean obviously being an American football fan, when the Steelers which they're not this year, but when they go you know, they win their first game, they the Americans class that as one and O. Yeah. Yeah. Not now, one and zero, which it, it, I find very strange. It, it is, but there we go anyway. Um so well, they've butchered the language anyway. But <laughs> it's I've got not, to be careful. It's not called English for nothing. No, I got, I got in trouble about that for saying saying things that some Americans take offensive. But you know, they all know I love them. Really, Americans have got their own way. It's a different country. It's it different will culture. have a different language, yeah. albeit a similar language, mm. and ninety nine percent of it is the same. Yeah, but. It is slightly different, and then, yeah, it's, yeah. You know, that's what it is. Anyway, um, but we um, love you really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in the early 1900s, there were a number of railroad companies in the U.S. One of these was one called the Southern Railroad Company, um, and it has been around in other forms since 1827, when it was first called the South Carolina Canal and Railroad Company. Uh, but for the purposes of this story, I'm going to be talking about the SRC of 1903, the Southern Railway Company. Yeah. Well, it's actually the Southern Railroad Company. Yeah? No, yeah, we call them railways, they call them railroads. Yeah. Um, whereas the Casey Jones episode was actually about the man, this one is going to be about the accident. Okay. All right. The Southern Railroad company ran trains on a on a line from washington dc to atlanta with a number of stops on the way now that there were two actual changeover stops because that's such a long distance um, and the crews were swapped for a new one and the original crew took the train back in the opposite direction mm-hmm. okay well they took the engine the two major changing places on their line were at monroe in virginia and in spencer north carolina they initially ran two trains on this line. They were train 37 and 38. 37 was the southbound, 38 was the northbound, and these were both passenger trains. Uh, November 1982, In November 1902, they began to run a, a postal train on the same route. Okay. Uh, these were designated 97 for the southbound, and 98 for the northbound. And these trains transported the mail collected from all around the Washington area and transported it south. Uh, Because it was a mail train, there were no official passengers, only postal workers who sorted out the mail en route. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So they worked en route. On its first run, the train went down to Atlanta and it reached its destination in a record 22 hours eventually arrived at New Orleans after 33 hours. Now, that's a record pace for the time. Yeah. So, 33 hours to New Orleans. So, in 1902, Congress awarded the Southern Railroad Company the contract to move the U.S. mail south. Okay. So they've um, got a and they contract. gave the company $140,000 to do it. Wow. All right. It's three and a half million nowadays i think 
It's about right, about three and a half million. That's a lot. Um, and that was for the southbound mail contract. But they did stick conditions on it. Uh, because it was such a lucrative contract and, and a lot of companies were trying to get it, the company would do almost anything to keep it. Yes. So they put their newest and fastest engine out to actually pull the train. The southbound train, like I said, was designated 97, and it became the pride of the Southern Railroad Company. It was known as the fast mail because the company moved the mail very, very efficiently and very quickly. But the contract had some penalties. Like they all do. Yeah. Yeah. The railroad would be penalised a substantial amount of money for every minute that the mail arrived into Atlanta late. So every minute. You can imagine that. All right. The time allowed for the whole journey meant that the train had to cover 40 miles an hour. And that included some of the stops because it did have to stop sometimes. Mm. All right. This was only just doable because in 1903, this particular line was uh, the technical side of it. It was a single track. It had past sidings and they only used the light 85 pound rail, which to be honest, was a lightweight rail. Yeah. So because the amount the company was being paid, all other trains on the line had to give way to the to the 97. They had to pull into a siding before the 97 even got close. Passenger trains had to be in the siding at least 10 minutes before 97 was due. And freight trains had to do it 30 minutes. Wow. Before the train was due. That makes sense, though, when you think about it logically, you know, because you're not going to get penalised for yeah. a freight train being late. Yeah. Nothing was allowed to hold up that particular train. Mm. Right. The train had to pick up mail on the way down from some of these smaller stations. All right. <laughs> they did it without stopping. The mail was put on posts at the station mm. and... As the train went through, it slowed down slightly, but a mailman would lean out, grab the bag, and pull it into the train. Awesome. Hey, it's, yeah, well, to be fair, if you can do it. Mailmen who worked on the train, um, if there was mail to be dropped off at a station, they just kicked the bag out as it went through. Right. I mean, it's it's not a safe thing. It doesn't seem that some of the jobs on these trains were actually not the safest on the planet. I mean, the process is, is dangerous to start off with, and there are several records of mail clerks being killed trying to do this. Yeah, And sometimes the bag of mail would just fall onto the track and be run over by the train's wheels, and it would just explosion of mail across the train. And they used to refer to that as a, uh, as, as a snowstorm. Do they get penalised for that? No, just the mail didn't get there. It's the train had to get there, not the mail. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> so it didn't really matter. It's just a oh shit moment. Yeah. Than... I mean, the route was split. This particular route was split into several sections. Each section had a change of crew. Um, and it, it the, the actual line itself wasn't risk-free. I mean, in in 7th of July, 1903, the, the northbound passenger train was involved in an accident near lynchburg virginia 
Uh, there'd been a misread order, and the train, which was number 38, collided with a freight train on the same line. That killed 29 people. Wow. 19 passengers, four crew. <laughs> Believe it or not, that is what's mentioned in the song. Oh, really? This is not 38, it's old 97. Yeah. Yeah. I, I- I never really realised no. what that meant. So no, yeah. but now you do. Uh, due to the time restraints put on the train company and the fact they put their newest and fastest engine on the run, 97 very quickly became the most reliable service and then the pride of the company. Sounds I mean, 13th of April, because we're going, this, this wasn't a safe line. Uh, 13th of April, 1903, 97 left Washington, 8 a.m., en route to New Orleans. As the train approached Lexington, it's hit a rock. Derailed the train, killed the engineer and the fireman. Hmm. Uh, A few months later, June 8, 1903, near Fort Mill, South Carolina, freight train 74, been given orders to wait at Fort Mill for, for train 97. The engine crew misinterpreted the order, they proceeded onto the line, both trains collided head-on. Wow. Nobody was killed because the engineers actually jumped to safety. But there you go. So it gives the impression that this was an unlucky line. It wasn't. It was a normal railway line mm. for, the, for the time. So should we get on to the actual subject? Yeah, go on. <laughs> Why not? We've covered the basis of it, haven't we? Okay, well, I do that, don't I? I just... Yeah. Gives people a, an understanding of where we are. Yeah. Like most of mine, I do try to set the scene right at the start. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We will go on to what we're actually going to talk about. Yes. And this is on Sunday. It's a Sunday of all days. 27th of September, 1903. Train 97 departed Washington, D.C. with mail at 10 a.m. Yep. The train was over an hour late. It should have left at 9, it left at 10. It was delayed because the mail from New York and Philadelphia to Washington was um, was delayed. Now, Southern Railroad had no control over this because it was the responsibility, responsibility of the Pennsylvania Railroad. But they were... But it's still at, them that gets penalised. But it's still late. them that gets penalised if they're late. So 97 headed off to the crew change at Monroe, Virginia. Um, as usual, the train was a short one. It consisted of four cars, two postal cars, one express car and a baggage car. Um, the train left Washington and was pulling, being pulled by uh, engine 1095. That's a number plate of the engine, yeah. basically. Waiting at Monroe was the crew that would make the onward journey. And they were going to Spencer. And the train engine was 11.02. Now, 11.02 was Southern's newest engine. It was a 4.60. It had arrived only five weeks previously, and it was still black and shiny in its new paint. Yeah. Um, the engineer was going to be a gentleman called Thomas Henry Christer. Unfortunately... Southern had sent him down to Spencer earlier in the day. He had had to transport a dining car down there, and he was due back in time to take 97 on the on the downward journey. Yeah. But a track problem prevented him from actually getting 
back to uh, Monroe in time. Yeah. So they had to put someone else on the line. Mm. Even though the train was running an hour late. (laughs) Wow, so he was well behind. So he was well behind, yeah. Uh, As a result, they basically grabbed an engineer. That engineer was a gentleman called Steve Brody. Um, and he was assigned at very, very short notice. Now, that's, that's not an unusual occurrence. Yeah, it was something that happened quite often. Yeah. Okay. Now, Steve Brody's actual name was Joseph Andrew Brody, but he was known as Steve. And you've got to ask yourself why. Um, the nickname was Steve. Uh, referred to a gentleman called Steve Brody, who was a well-known daredevil at, of the time. I mean, he claimed to be the first person to jump off the Brooklyn Bridge and survived. Um, and he's supposed to have done that in 1886. And because Joseph's name was Brody, they called him Steve. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, it kind of implied that he was a bit of a risk taker, uh, but this, so were most of the engineers yeah, of the day. I was going to say, you can't do that job without being, yeah. can you really? I mean, Joseph was born on the 1st of April 1870 in Smith County, Virginia, uh, making him 33 years old at the time of this incident. He was an experienced engineer. Uh, he'd worked for the Seaboard Line and Norfolk and Western, and he had a reasonably good reputation for being able to run a fast train. He'd made the trip between Monroe and Danville uh, loads of times, mainly hauling freight. He knew the route, the characteristics of it, the crossings, the warning signs, and any potential problem points. Um, He'd done the trip both day and night, so he's kind of well acquainted with the route he's going to take. Yeah. Yeah, but this is going to be his first run on the fast mail, and it's the first time he'd ever operated engine 1102. Bearing in mind, it's a brand new engine. Yeah, so yeah, most people would be. Along with him in the cab was a fireman. Uh, I can't find the gentleman's first name, but his initials are AG and his surname was Clap. It's really going to be Andrew, isn't it? And it this could time. be, yeah. Um, and there was an apprentice fireman, John Hodge, um, and he's listed as Dodge in a couple of... Uh, some paperwork, all right? Um, the other two members of the crew for 97 on that journey were a gentleman called John Blair, the conductor, and, and Jane James Moody. Uh, he was the flagman. Yeah. So, engine 1095 pulls into Monroe. It disconnects from the four wooden cars and gets replaced by 1102. Once the steam and the air brakes were up to working pressure, the mail clerks who stayed on board, continued dealing with all their uh, the, well, the mail yeah, and sorting it. Job. And believe it or not, actually, as a side note, there were a couple of crates of canaries on board the train at the time. Oh. And they were destined for um, southern mines. Canaries in a mine. Canaries in a mine. Canaries are more susceptible to uh, gas. So if there's a gas leak, the canaries would die before the miners. So oh, okay. if, your, if your canaries were still alive, you knew that the air was okay to breathe in the mine. That's a side note for you. Yeah, that's quite interesting, actually. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, having collected his orders for the run, Steve Brody climbs aboard the engine and opens the steam valves, releases the brakes, and 1102, the old 97, pulls out of Monroe, Virginia, with 18 crew and mailmen, including a 12-year-old son of one of the postal clerks who was just going along for the ride. 
The run down to Spencer was going to be 166 miles and it was going to take about 4 hours 15 minutes at an average speed of 40 miles an hour. Yeah. There is no written record in existence that says Steve was told to make up the hour's delay, but it was known that the delay would cost the company a lot of money. He was told to skip regular junction stops entirely and the orders to that effect still exist and they are were called run late orders and they were instructing him to run 45 minutes late into lynchburg and 40 minutes late into danville so he was going to make up he was told to make up 15 minutes well 20 there 15 and then another five yeah no you're right 20 minutes yeah um in Which other words, impossible when you think you, if you were averaging 42 miles an hour over that, you could do it. Yeah, you'd make that. Yeah. I mean, in other words, Brody was ordered not to arrive in Danville before the late runtime. And he was not he was only allowed, not required, but allowed to make up 28 minutes on the run down. Now, that was his maximum allowed. That was only he wasn't a specifically ordered to exceed the average of 40 miles an hour but his bosses knew that he would have to do that to to do what they've sort of asked yeah it's one of those we're not going to tell you to do it but if you you know we expect you to do this and we know there's no other way you're going to do it but if anyone asks we didn't tell you to do it yeah it's near enough i mean but but it's i bet that still goes on now yeah it does (laughs) yeah um Um, he must have felt he must have honestly felt obliged to do what he could if only to maintain the route's reputation and if he could average 51 miles an hour he could actually make up for the hour's delay yeah so I mean he had a light load the engine 1109 was perfectly capable of doing 100 mile an hour certainly possible I mean it wasn't possible on the route to Spencer because there were steep gradients, tight curbs, posted speed limits. But the part of the route took 97 through the rolling countryside and there was a section that he could make up some time and that was just past the White Oak Mountain. So in an attempt to make up the missing hour, Steve would probably have employed a technique which was used by some of the engineers at the time. He'd approach a curb at the recommended speed and apply the brakes when entering the curb, not before. Okay. So he'd brake on the bend. This would gain him a little bit of time and allow him to switch to accelerating the curve or accelerating out of the curve a lot earlier. So he'd make up a few seconds, but even a few seconds makes a difference. Mm. Yeah. 97 pulled into Lynchburg, Virginia, uh, and... A gentleman by the name of Wentworth Armistead boarded the train, um, and he was the locker man, the safe locker. Right, okay. The next stop is Danville. Now, in order to reach Danville, the track coming into Danville itself was a gradient, was running downhill. Okay. There were three miles of it. And then there was a... uh, a left-hand bend as the track crossed over um, the Dan and Stillhouse Creek. The creek is situated in a gorge about 45 feet deep, but there wasn't a bridge going over. 
Okay. Instead, there was something called a trestle. Now, do you know what a trestle is? I actually don't. Okay. A trestle is very similar to a bridge, but a bridge is only attached at either end. Okay. Yeah. A trestle is attached at either end, and then it's held up along its whole length by wood. So it looks like a wooden lattice wall, and the track runs across the top of it. Right, yeah, yeah, I can imagine that in like an old western. That's exactly what it is. So it's, okay. it's, it is essentially a bridge, but it goes all the way to the bottom of the gorge rather than... Correct, yeah. yeah. It's not suspended. Yeah, they call those trestles. Now, on the north side of Stillhouse Trestle, there's a left-hand bend, and it's at the end of this three-mile gradient. The postage speed limit on the trestle is five miles an hour. Right, Okay. Everything's quiet. It's picturesque. There are children playing in the creek underneath the trestle. And Steve Brody and the fast mail train approaches at around 2.30 in the afternoon. Now, nobody actually knows what happened in the cab. Okay. But the historians have worked out through time, this is what's most likely happened. Steve comes down the gradient towards the curve according to witnesses he's traveling at around 50 miles an hour um, it is likely that he had been constantly applying the air brakes yeah and this has caused the available pressure in the air brake system to drop that will stop slow that will reduce the braking power on the train if you yeah. keep using the brakes you, you're reducing the air pressure yeah yeah makes sense now, witnesses reported hearing the train's whistle sounding constantly and seeing sparks coming from the six driving wheels. There are several witnesses um, to this incident because the tracks actually passed between houses in Danville before the bend. Now, realising he's going too fast, Steve applies the brakes. He's attempted to apply the brakes. When they don't work, he slows to, uh, to actually slow the train, he does a couple of things. He shuts down the power to the drive wheels, activates reverse gear, reapplies the steam and puts power into the, to the drive wheels whilst dumping what they call sandboxes. Yeah, yeah. The drive wheels then try to reverse the train whilst it's still travelling forwards. There's your sparks that were seen by the witnesses. Mm-hmm. We'll never know if he actually applied the brakes or if they just failed. But what we do know is that the fast mail did not make that bend. Yeah, it was going too fast. For the it bend. went straight on. Yeah. It left the rails about 50 feet from the start of the trestle. And it just went soaring into the air and plunged straight down the ravine to, this, to the creek bed 45 feet below. Wow. One of the carriages went through the trestle, creating a 90-foot hole, and took it, taking out all the telegraph poles and lines that ran alongside the track. Upon hitting the ground, the engine and cars are reduced to a mass of metal, twisted, splintered wood, God knows what else. And the cars also hit the side of a place called the Riverside Cotton Mill, which, funnily enough, is alongside the trestle. Now, rescuers were there quickly. Yeah. You know, it's, it's near enough a residential area. Mm, pretty much, isn't it? The flames that erupted afterwards, they consumed 
loads of the splintered debris of the wooden cars and it the fire brigade took quite a bit of time to get the the actual fire out yeah it wasn't under control very quickly um but once they'd done it the scene was just weird the the mailbags in all the cars are torn open the packages were scattered everywhere you've got a snowstorm which is kind of like what we said earlier after all the noise from the accident had stopped, the hissing of the steam and and the burning of the wood had gone, there was no sound. Except the canaries that would manage to break out of their cages and were just circling around the actual train Yeah, that crash. must be quite eerie when you're sort of seeing a, basically a, a death scene and all you can hear is birds. Yeah, strange. Hmm. Um, only a small amount of the mail survived. There were survivors, but the three people in the cab weren't amongst them. Steve Brody's body was found badly burnt, his skin and hair torn off by the steam, and he was lying underneath the stillhouse trestle some distance from the cab. The two firemen were so badly crushed and scalded that they couldn't be identified separately. Wow. All the dead were found mangled in the smashed carriages, and of the 18 men on board, 11 were killed. I've I've got a list of the people here. I mean, you yeah, uh, go on, yeah, yeah. Uh, James Brody or Steve Brody, the engineer. Mister Clapp, the fireman. Hodge, the apprentice fireman. You've got J. Thomas Blair, the conductor. S. J. Moody, the flagman. And then you've got John Thompson, W. Chambers, D. Flory, uh, F. Ardenwright, the twelve-year-old boy of. Uh, thompson all the previous were postal clerks the injured people louis spires frank brooks percival indermayer charlise reams jennings dunlop a bloke called m malpin and uh, j thompson survived yeah i'd rather not have survived that to be fair one person escaped unhurt, and that was W. Pickney. See, now, when you think about a train going down a hill at 50 miles an hour, over a ravine, into a canyon, going headfirst into the ground, how did he get out unhurt? <laughs> it's believed he jumped before the train left the track. So oh. the train could not have been going that quick if he survived the jump. Hmm. But yeah, but I mean to come out not dead. Mm. I mean that that's that's my opinion. The newspapers at the time, and they're probably not well known for telling the whole truth, say that nobody made any attempt to jump from the train. Personally, I think the uh, express manager probably did. But there mm. we go. Within minutes of the crash, rescuers were on scene. Firefighters put the flame out. Uh, put the the flame the flames because there would have been more of them. But within days, several thousand people had made the trip to see the actual accident. Um, I mean, a couple of ladies from uh, Danville came out for the purpose to actually see it. They fainted at the site. Um, really? And, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing when you sort of think of things like that. I mean, as, as train wrecks go, it was spectacular. It was You've got a flying train. Yeah, it's almost. It didn't like a go cartoon. tumbling down the edge of the ravine. It flew off the edge of the track and flew into the ravine before dropping. Yeah, I mean, it's quite. <laughs> you almost like. I mean, I remember having a 
Thomas the Tank Engine thing when I was a kid. I mean, you probably bloody remember the old wooden thing. Yeah. And you would, you'd flick the train as fast as you can and you'd just watch it just zoom off the edge. And that's pretty much, you know, it got to a certain point and just plummeted. Yeah. I mean, newspaper articles spread the story around the country, complete with pictures. There's vivid accounts of the scene, eyewitness told and retold the story. Um, the railway company allowed local residents to salvage the wood from the scene for firewood. Okay. But that had the added benefit of actually uncovering the engine and, and some of the bodies. But it, it did sort of cause a bit of grief for the investigation. And it was several days before the engine was actually exposed enough to actually be hauled upright because it was on its side. Yeah. The subsequent inquiry placed all of the blame on Steve Brody. Um, they say it took he took it upon himself to make up the time that the train had been delayed. He came down the gradient too fast. He was unable to slow the train down enough, and that caused it to derail 50 feet before the trestle, sending the whole train into the ravine. The railroad company denied ever telling him to make up any time. Now, although there's no written evidence to contradict this, it's more likely they probably did. Uh, there's mm. no way of knowing the air pressure in the braking system, whether it was all right or whether they were working. The, some of the mail clerks that testified at the inquiry said that Brody never applied the brakes. Would they have ever known if he'd applied the brakes? Mm, Probably no. not. Not only that, they, it's you know, very possible they were going, look, we'll give you $5 if you just mm, don't say. I mean, if he planned to break on the grade leading to the trestle and discovered he'd got no air pressure there's nothing he could do to stop that train no you know it's just it's just just going to happen when the engine was cleared of debris and it was examined the brake lever was in the on position so it does show that brady had the brakes on mm. just don't know whether they were working whether this was his final attempt to slow the train or whether it was done without any effect we don't know one of my uh, little bits of research came out with one of the flanges on the drive wheel had broken. Uh, maybe that caused the derail? I don't honestly think so. The reason for the accident was purely down to excessive speed. Uh, the railroad company paid the families of the dead a substantial amount of money. Everybody except the family of Brody. Because oh. he, he was responsible. Oh, that's a bit harsh. Well, I suppose it's, it is harsh and it isn't harsh. And when you look at the American railroad system, they didn't really, you know, they mm -hmm. had someone to blame it on then. Yeah. I mean, engine 1102 was, was brand new, so they recovered it from the ravine, repaired it, cleaned it, and put it back into service. Yeah. Um, it was finally dismantled in 1935. I mean, we know about this because there was a ballad of the crash made shortly after it um it was sung to the tune of uh, the ship that never returned which was one of those popular ones at the time almost 20 years after the wreck it was actually recorded by a local musician a gentleman called henry witter uh, vernon dalhart who was an opera singer from new york heard that version of the song and made his own he called it the wreck of the old 97 and this was the first ever record to sell over a million copies and eventually sold five million. Wow. I uh, never heard that version. I've no. only ever heard. Uh, Johnny Cash recorded it 
1957. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the one I know. That's the one you know. That's the one most people know. Yeah. Yeah, because that's, you know, well, let's be honest, it's Johnny Cash. So yeah. I have a bit of a thing for Johnny Cash. I absolutely love it. there you go. That's the story of the wreck of the old 97. Yeah, awesome story. Like I say, it's one I've, I've wanted to cover, you know, since I, well, since I've been doing this, because obviously the songs and... I think you you actually showed me the song probably must have been just over a year ago now and that was I was just like yeah absolutely love it um did a bit of research into it and when you said you know obviously about Casey Jones and I thought well you know I'll I'll leave this one for you to to perfect and uh yeah it's an awesome story it really really is it's very very interesting so I hope yeah I mean between the two of us we don't do too badly. No, I don't think it's so. It's your podcast, but I get involved quite often. Yeah, but I like it. You know, it's nice to it's nice to have you on the show. It's nice to to do it and I don't see you very often, so it's quite nice to to pop in and see you when I can, so. Well, yeah. It is um it's one of those things. I'm kind of glad that I get it. I I enjoy doing doing these with you because it's it sort of I love history mm. and a lot of what I know goes into thing. I do have to do a little bit of research yeah. some of the things I research I do a hell of a lot of some of them I don't some of them I actually know the bare facts mm. well I mean um, I, I, I got asked uh, I, I get asked quite a lot at work because obviously being a delivery driver a lot of people ask about the podcast because it's something to listen to when you're driving Um and they always say, you know, your dad, you know, your dad does this, your dad does that, and and I say, well, do you know what? I said, the funny thing is, is I said, you know, I can tell you now, the Titanic. I said, he didn't even look at the paperwork. I said, That's dumb from memory. That yeah. was. I said that one. I said Jack the Ripper. I said other than getting like the times and the dates, that was it. I said everything else was all done, you know, just from memory. It's like I said it's that that sort of the amount of effort that you put in. And it does show because I say when when we come to these sort of ones that are a bit more fun. I know the death of eleven people isn't necessarily fun, <laughs> but you know what I mean. It's a more fun episode. It's not as you know, it's not depressing. I don't think, even though no. people have died, it's not a depressing episode. So yeah, it does show. And I, like I said, I mean, the guy, the guys who listen to the podcast, ladies and, and gentlemen, and anyone else who listens to the show. You know, they always say, you know, or you know, where did your your love of history come from? I think it's one of the one of the episodes I did, which was it must be about episode twenty or something like that, and it was mm. about um, just I asked people to send me questions. You know, just ask me some questions, and I'll answer them on the podcast. And one of the main questions was, you know, what got you into history? And it was like literally growing up. I said when I used to come here and see you, and the amount of times we'd just be sat downstairs. And they'd be sod all on TV, apart from the History Channel. And you don't really pick up on it until you're a bit older and you actually realise, well, hang on, I remember that, and I remember that, and I remember that. And it's a lot more interesting when you get a bit older. At the time, I hated it, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> when I was sort of 10 years old thinking, oh, I want to put Pokemon on, and you're sat there watching something about, you know, bloody Titanic or whatever, and you're like, oh, I just don't really want to watch this. But when you're older... You can appreciate it more, and yeah, that's that sort of got me into it. So, mm. but I think we've spoken about it enough. 
Um, for those of you who haven't heard it, I think you're going to hear it now. Is uh, like I said, probably one of my most favourite Johnny Cash songs ever. Um, and it's uh, the wreck of the old 97. <laughs> They gave him his orders at Monroe, Virginia, said, Steve, you're way behind time. This is not 38, this is old 97, you must put her in to spend her own time. He turned around and said to his black crazy fireman, shovel on a little more coal. And when we cross that white oak mountain, watch old Seven road. And then a telegram came to Washington Station. This is how it read. It said that brave engineer that has run all 97 is lying down in Danville dead. He was going down a grade, making 90 miles an hour when a whistle broke into a scream. He was found in the wreck with his hand on the throttle, scalded to death by the steam. Take a warning from this time on and learn. Don't you speak hard words to your true lover, husband. He may leave you and never return. The world is always on, but you shouldn't be. Put junk sleep to bed. At Mattress Firm's Black Friday Now Sale, save up to 60% on Sealy with Queen Mattresses starting at $279.99. Talk to a sleep expert today and unjunk your sleep. In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool too. With an ice cold cold brew. And not just any cold brew, but one that's slow steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. At Progressive, you can get 24-7 protection, even if you break the space-time continuum. We did it. We time traveled to yesterday. Wait, Progressive covers us 24-7, but we just created an eight-day week, and it's 24-7 coverage, not 24-8. We gotta go back. Are you joking right now? Shh, I'm calling them. Hi, I have a question about time travel. Progressive offers more than a great price when you bundle home and auto. We offer round-the-clock protection, which literally means anytime. 
Coverage from Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and third-party insurers and subject to policy terms. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations. Geico presents Daily Affirmations. Repeat after me. Our thoughts are like the ocean. Our thoughts are like the ocean. Our thoughts create our reality. Our thoughts create our reality. We're thinking Geico offers claim service 24-7 with personalized attention from an assigned team. Geico offers claim service? Um, I wasn't thinking that. We think it and it becomes our reality. So, uh, what about washboard abs? Let's give it a go. Think really hard. Okay, abs, abs. Keep thinking. To manifest more Geico in your life, go to geico.com. Finding the right person for the job isn't easy. Just ask someone who hired a stuntman to do their home renovations. Just finished the new sunroom, Mrs. C. The best part is I used candy glass for all the windows, so you can do this. And this. Doesn't hurt a bit either. But if you've got an insurance question, you can always count on your local GEICO agent. They can bundle your policies, which could save you hundreds. And if you don't want to take the long way to the kitchen, the walls are breakaway too. See? For expert help with all your insurance needs, visit GEICO.com slash local today.